Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday. February the 13th, 2023. Last week, we had a great show with the wonderful Irish writer Fintan O'Toole on contemporary Ireland as a model for an open 21st century society. Um, his magnificent book, We Don't Know Ourselves, has just been has just come out as a paperback uh, in the US. I think the New York Times called it one of the, the top 10 books of, of, of last year, and it's been generally acclaimed. The Personal History of Modern Ireland, which talks about the ironic consequences of a highly conservative country almost unknowingly reinventing itself for the open 21st century. Ireland now is about as tolerant and open a society as exists. And one of the things I forgot to ask Fintan, I meant to, but we, we got involved in too many other uh, conversations about Ireland was the comparison of Ireland and, and, and Britain. Of course, Britain colonized Ireland, and in many ways, Britain is the reverse of Ireland. It's closed, it's reactionary, and of course, that's best summarized uh, by the rather sad, sordid history of Brexit. Uh, but uh, we can't get Finton back on the show, but we got the next best thing. Just as good, really. Sathnam Segera. He was on the show as one of Britain's leading journalists and writers and thinkers on the rather closed nature of contemporary Britain. Um, he was on the show about a year ago talking about uh, a book called Empire Land, which was then out in the U UK. It was a big hit. And it's coming out later this month in the US Empire Land, How Imperialism Has Shaped Modern Britain. Sathnam is joining us from modern Britain, if there's such a place as modern Britain. Uh, Sathnam, uh, maybe we could begin. I don't know how much you know about Ireland, uh, but is Ireland the reverse of Britain? And is that perhaps in an odd way, a rather sad way, a consequence, the reverse consequence of being colonized as opposed to being the colonizer? I don't know if it's the reverse, but I find that when imperial history is discussed in general, Ireland is kind of excluded. There's an idea that Ireland is separate. And actually, some people argue it was not even a colony. It was always part of the British Isles. But I think it's always useful to compare imperial events to what was happening in Ireland. So when I learned about the Great Potato Famine at school, but no one compared that to the famines that were happening in India, it would have been very useful. And also when immigrants arrived from empire in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. No one pointed out that actually Irish immigrants had arrived in Britain 100 years beforehand, often living in exactly the same areas and facing exactly the same problems. They were accused of not speaking language. They're accused of being violent. They're accused of practicing a strange religion. They're accused of not integrating. All things that Sikhs like my, my family were accused of. And I think I wish that people would talk more about the Irish experience when talking about British Empire. As I mentioned in the introduction, the Brexit drama continues. It's never ending. It's like one of those West End theatrical shows that's been going for hundreds of years. Uh, apparently, according to The Independent, the Tories and Labour met for secret talks on Britain's failure. Meanwhile, bankers are telling us that 
Brexit costs the United Kingdom £29 billion. Uh, pounds, um, and the Conservatives remain profoundly, disturbingly divided on Brexit. Um, how much does Brexit and the absurd theatrics over Brexit capture what you're trying to argue in uh, Empire Land about imperialism? In other words, to what extent is one of the legacies of imperialism this bloated sense of Britain's self-importance. I, I absolutely think it is. Brexit is a legacy of British Empire and the fact that we've never really come to terms with what happened during British, British Empire. People get very cross when you say that, but it's absolutely the case. I mean, Nigel Farage, I remember him saying when Brexit happened that we'd achieved independence from the U European Union without a single shot being fired. And that is the language of post-colonialism, isn't it? And, you know, this obsession with global Britain, this obsession amongst Brexiteers for Britain becoming a great trading nation. It's all stuff that harks back to British Empire, a time when we were in charge. And I think we never came to terms with the fact that we ran the biggest empire in human history and then lost it. And so for us, I think it always felt odd that we were a member of this club where it felt like we were taking rules. And I feel like psychologically we, we just couldn't handle it. And... Here we are in this almighty mess. The truth of empire is, is profoundly disturbing. L like you, I grew up in England um, and we didn't do much imperial history. We could have. In fact, I was an undergraduate in history, but I chose to study Eastern Europe, um, different kind of colonial history. But we never really learned the truth of the nature of the British Empire. I think the assumption was that we were always rather kind imperialists. It was almost an Orwellian take on, on, on the best of British. Uh, recently, we had William Dalrymple on the show, a very important book, The Anarchy, which is about how Britain essentially pillaged India. To what extent um, Sathnan is uh, the truth of, of, of the nature of the British Empire? To what extent is it mostly a mystery to contemporary Britons? I think it's still not particularly well taught. It's taught better than it was in my day. Um, it's still not the thing we think of when we think of British history. We think of the Tudors, Henry VIII. We think of World War I, World War II. And I think that's partly because the history of the World Wars is much more simple uh, than the history of empire, which went over 500 years, covered a quarter of the planet at one point, had such uh, different tones in different parts of the world, had different morality, was confusing. Um, people disagree about what happened. People disagree about when it began and when it, when it ended. Whereas World War II, clear beginning, clear end, clear morality, we beat the evil racist Germans. And it's much easier to study, you know, eight years of history rather than 500 years of history. Also, empire happened outside Britain. We never had a dark night of the soul like the French after World War II or the Germans after World War II, where we had to face up to what happened because it happened elsewhere. So we could just act like it didn't really happen. And also what I'm beginning to realize after I wrote the book is that the British went out of their way to destroy the evidence. I, mean, I don't know if you've heard of Operation Legacy, but you know we systematically destroyed documentation. It was said that there was a, a permanent uh, cloud of smoke over Delhi when we left because so many documents were being burnt. And I think that's why it's taken quite a long time after the end of empire 
for people to really understand what happened. Uh, your book uh, is coming out uh, in a children's edition. I think it's going to be out this summer. Stolen History, the truth about the British Empire and how it shaped us. How important, I assume you think this is very important, but how important is it to teach uh, the ideas of, of Empire Land in schools through texts like Stolen History designed for a younger audience? I think it's absolutely essential. I, I mean, I can't believe I have to get to my mid-40s before understanding this history, you know. And one of the main reasons is that we are a multicultural society in Britain because we had a multicultural empire, you know. When Im immigrants of colour began arriving in Britain in significant numbers in 1948, they did so as citizens of empire, you know. And there's been a narrative in my life that brown people came to Britain somehow uninvited, you know. And I think that makes... Britain very dysfunctional. I think it creates the idea that brown people are outsiders. And I think it can only be a positive thing if we understand the imperial history, which led to so many, you know, black and Asian people being here. Southland, some people might push back and say, well, Britain has a, uh, a brown, using your language, a brown prime minister, uh, wealthy, powerful, brown people of one kind or another, often in, actually, as it happens in the Conservative Party. How would you respond to that? I would say uh, the arrival of Rishi Sunak is a great thing. It says something really wonderful about race relations in Britain today. But he no more represents the end of racism in Britain than the arrival of Barack Obama did in America. You know, there's huge issues still. In, in Britain with racism. And I, I argue in the book that actually our particular brand of racism in Britain can be explained almost entirely by empire. You know, the way black people and brown people were Asians were treated in the 1960s and 70s and 80s was almost exactly how they were treated in an empire. They weren't allowed to do the jobs that white people did. They weren't allowed to live in the same areas, which is exactly what happened in the Raj, you know, and they, they were accused of not integrating and so on. And I think we need to face up to the fact that for at least 100 years, British Empire was proudly, proudly racist and white supremacist. And now there's an idea kind of amongst imperial uh, kind of nostalgia types that, you know, British Empire wasn't particularly racist. I think that would be a shock to most Victorians who, who gloried in the fact that it was racist. We did a show uh, on, we've done a number of shows on Winston Churchill, some of the revisionist biographies and studies of Churchill underline his racism. Of course, for most people, he's the greatest 20th century, if not the greatest uh, English prime minister in history. Was that captured by Churchill and his uh, clear racism when it came to South Asians? Uh, he had odd attitudes to different peoples of different skins. He, he was very sympathetic to the Jews, much less sympathetic to South Asians. Yeah, I mean, he was, uh, you know, racist, even by the standards of his time. His colleagues were dismayed. But this leads to a very important point, which is that in history, both things can be true. So Winston Churchill, a really quite massive racist, even by the standards of the time, but also he saved liberal democracy and was a hero. Both things can be true. You could say the same thing about Gandhi. You know, he had quite horrible ideas about black people when he was in South Africa, but equally he fought the Raj and won. And I think both things can be true, but I feel that our popular culture in the West, in America and the UK especially, can't handle this kind of dissonance, can't handle the idea that history could be contradictory and people especially 
can be complicated. And I think that applies to just human nature in general. I think whatever you say about someone, the opposite is true to a certain, a certain degree. I think artists understand that, novelists understand that, but I feel like uh, the average newspaper and the average journalist probably doesn't. Certainly novelists understand it. We've had a number of novels about the very subject you're talking about recently. Eleanor Shearer, a young woman of, of West Indian descent, uh, wrote a, an acclaimed post-slavery West Indian novel on motherhood and resilience against the history of slavery and racism. As a non-fiction writer, as more of a traditional journalist, do you think it's tougher to write about this than as a, as a novelist or even a filmmaker? I know your, your stuff's been made into a, a very successful TV show, Empire State of Mind, um, but, but you're not a filmmaker, really, and you're certainly not... Well, you've, you've written... Um, uh, you, you've written, uh, yeah, you wrote a novel, Marriage yeah. Material. You wrote a, an autobiography, The Boy with the Top Knot. But you are essentially, I mean, do you, do you define yourself above all else as a journalist, a nonfiction journalist? Um, I'm not sure, actually. And, you know, if you want to make it as a writer, I would say don't do what I do. You should do one thing and do it well and become known for that. And then people buy all your books. I've written in three different genres and they're all quite different books but each and, of the books has done very well yeah and i think actually looking back there is something that unites them and that's history so the memoir was the history of my family the novel was the history of asians in britain and empire land is about the history of the british empire and i think i've slowly become increasingly interested in the past and how it defines the present and become a kind of historian by accident can but you escape the past Sathman, in england i mean Fintan or Tall, I think, would argue no one can really escape the past, especially people in Ireland. Um, every, everything about uh, Britain is about escaping the past or trying to. I just saw a movie by um, Sam Mendes, Empire of Light. Uh, again, it's probably not coincidental that the word empire was included in this movie about uh, a biracial relationship on the south coast of England. Um, can one escape history? Especially absolutely. in England. No, absolutely not. But I would argue the Americans are, are the worst at trying to, are not facing up to history. And well, I, I want to get to the Americans late. I, mm. I, I want to get to the Ameri to, to the issue of America and history a, a little bit later. But let's first focus on, on Britain for the moment. Can we escape history? I mean, I, I managed to, <laughs> I guess, until I was about 42. I mean, I avoided history books because I find them too long. And also they assume a lot of knowledge. I think there's history books generally tend to be written for history book readers and for other historians. And I don't think historians are ne necessarily very good at synthesizing stuff and taking a big overview. And this is what I think journalists are actually good at, kind of synthesizing a lot of information and bring it together. Whereas a historian will focus on their specialist period and just go on and on about that. And I think, it's helpful if other people come in and help to communicate to a bigger audience. Do you think some of the obsessions in Britain, particularly with the royal family, are an attempt to avoid history? We had a show a couple of weeks ago with the royal correspondent of the London Times, Valentine Lowe, on how the British royal family is trying at least to transform itself into a 21st century institution in a weird kind of way. Um, but are all these obsessions with the past, with the royal family and these absurd glorifications of things that 
certainly no longer exist and probably never existed. Are there any attempts to avoid history? I feel that actually what, what the royal rep family represent is that British people are happy with a certain type of history. If it involves ceremony and glorifying Britain, they're very happy with it. But if there's anything difficult, they're less happy. And actually, it's been interesting to see the royal family in the last two years becoming interested in the themes I write about. You know, there was that disastrous trip by Prince William and his wife to Barbados. Was the West Indies? Jamaica and so on. I think it was the Caribbean in general. And yeah. it just looked incredibly colonial. And even before they came back, they were apologizing for it. And then we had King Charles say that he wanted to learn more about slavery. I mean, you could argue he's had 70 odd years. He's had quite a long time to learn about it, but at least he's doing it. And I think the Royal, the royal Historic Palaces have also launched a research project into the, the connections between the palaces and slavery. And I think with the, the royal family in, in Holland having apologised and having commissioned such research, I think the royal family in Britain is going to have to do the same thing if it wants to maintain healthy relationships with the multicultural elements of Britain, which are becoming larger and larger, you know, in our lifetime, in my lifetime, hopefully I'll be able to see you know, London become a majority minority city. And I think the royal family has to connect to this history in some way if it's, if it's going to remain relevant. How much should the royal family and Britain in general face up to uh, their responsibility in the transatlantic slave trade. Done a number of shows about that, of course, as well. One with Sean Kingsley about uh, dredging up the sunken history of the transatlantic slave trade. How central was Britain, do you think, in the foundations of the transatlantic slave trade? Well, there are periods where it, where it dominate, dominated it. I mean, we sent three million Africans across the Atlantic, and that's a substantial portion of all the, all the people who were enslaved. And I think the royal family are in total denial about it because one of the biggest companies that shipped the biggest number of, of the enslaved was the Royal African Company. And that was a company based in, this, in St. James's Palace. You know, it was governed by the monarch, you know, and it enriched the royal family. And I don't think people have really faced up to that. I mean, one of the most shocking things about that company is that when some of the enslaved arrived in places like Barbados, they had the initials of the Duke of York branded onto their skin. And that's something I just found out recently. I don't think it's generally known. And I think the royal family have got a lot of facing up to do. And it's interesting that quite a few aristocratic families are actually doing that now. I mean, there's a great... It's very easy. It's very convenient. It doesn't cost them anything, though. Isn't, isn't it a form of self-dramatization for our social media age to claim responsibility and not do very much? I mean, what could the royal family do? Give away? Shouldn't they just simply abolish themselves and give the land back, <laughs> at least in well, some sort of symbolic attempt to, to say sorry for all this profound injustice? Well, there are two aristocratic families in Britain which are, which are doing stuff. So you've got the Alex Renton's been writing about his family and he's been giving away money. Yeah, and and also we had the Trevelyans the other week um, saying they were going to give money and exercise reparations and so on. So I think there are models appearing. And actually, the royal family are hugely connected. King Charles has huge connections to the black community in Britain. He's, al he's always been quite forward thinking when it comes to these issues. And actually, I think the avenues already exist for the family to do acts of reparation. I think they'd actually be in a really good position. 
You recently wrote an interesting piece, I think it was for the, the Times, about um, bemoaning the disappearance of libraries. You grew up in Wolverhampton in the, in the Midlands, just outside Birmingham. Um, and you, you remind your readers that your father couldn't read, but he took us to the library and now it's gone. One of the consequences of, shall we say, neoliberal cuss-cutting. To, to what extent um, is the history of Thatcherism, what people might call neoliberalism, and this attack on public libraries and public health and, and all other forms of public services, to what extent is it a continuation of the empire and at least uh, maybe even a, a form of disguised racism? I don't know if there is a direct link between empire and libraries, but I would dispute the link between neoliberalism and public services like libraries. Interesting, I, I mean, I've been, I was in Florida recently and staying with a friend who lives in a very affluent town. And they had a hugely successful library there and they were borrowing, even though they don't need to borrow books, the whole family were borrowing books. And I don't think libraries are necessarily a socialist idea. Uh, I think I read the other day that in America, there are more libraries than there are branches of Starbucks or McDonald's. So even in the enterprising United States of America, people can see the benefits of libraries, you know, and of, of course, Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie famously funded a bunch of libraries in Britain. So I would argue that it's, libraries aren't necessarily kind of, you know, socialist or anti-neoliberal idea. As I said, the book's taken about 18 months to get from the UK to the US. So you, you could have probably walked here in that amount of time. <laughs> Uh, the description uh, suggests, uh, at least from the, the current publisher, um, Pe Penguin Random House, um, that, and I'm quoting them, to order to understand America, we must first understand British imperialism. Um, what, what does the book teach, or what should the book, in your mind, teach Americans, not just about Britain, but about America itself? I think there's an idea in America that, it stands in opposition to British Empire, that it rejected everything to do with British Empire as a result of the War of Independence. And it forgets the fact that America is itself a creation of British Empire. But I mean, in a small way, you know, the English language that Americans use, that's completely full of words from India, the Empire, Australia, and Native America as well. Uh, when America fought in both world wars, it didn't just pair up with Britain, it paired up with the British Empire of which I think is, there's very little awareness. And also, when, you know, after the War of Independence, which I see essentially as a civil war, uh, happened, you know, America developed in a very so similar way. Again, so the, the War of Independence wasn't a... We just did a, a show, actually, Revolutionary Roads, about the heroic nature of, of the revolution. For you, it was a civil war, what, between two groups of white men? Of Britons, you know, of... They, they, I mean, the people involved were essentially from Britain, you know, and uh, America in the aftermath of that war took a path very similar to British Empire, to New Zealand, Australia and South Africa, this settler colonialism, you know, this obsession with sending native people into residential schools, uh, putting them into reserve confinements. This is stuff that happened in British Empire and in America. But there's all sorts of things like judicial processes, tolerant pragmatism, the distrust of theorizing, and actually racism, which America has in common with British Empire. And I think it, it's, it's uncomfortable with the idea. And of course, most of all, of course, you've got slavery, 
some of the slaves that ended up in America came via the British, of course, who were hugely involved in the transatlantic slavery, but also the produce produced by the slaves often went to the north of England, to places like Liverpool in the mills, and was made into cloth and so on. We did a show uh, last week also with American foreign policy analyst, who's actually somewhat of a neoconservative, Robert Kagan, on the collapse of the world order, 1900 to 1941. This is the second volume in a trilogy. He's writing The Ghost at the Feast, America and the Collapse of the World Order in this period. And of course, the world order collapsed because of the collapse in many ways of Britain. Um, he reminds us, and he's certainly no radical, that America was also a colony. To what extent do you think American domination of the 20th century is the second volume of the British Empire? You've suggested that the American Revolution was a civil war between uh, British white men. Um, to what extent uh, is American domination of the world, even the Cold War, a repeat of British colonial history and colonial domination. If you read someone like Kahinda Andrews, who's a professor of black Yeah, who's been on the show. Kahinda's really he? good. Yeah, so he argues that, you know, the World Bank, the United Nations, they are influenced by America and are doing the work that British Empire did. I don't entirely go for that, but definitely, you know, I mean... Well, when you say you don't entirely go for that, does that mean you reject it entirely or you're sort of half half convinced? I'm half convinced. I mean, when you read someone like Theodore Roosevelt talk about British Empire, he's, he's talking about it in an admiring way, way, you know. He's talking about the way in which British Empire ruled over India as being an inspiration for America. Yeah, there was a Churchillian, for better or worse, there was a, a Churchillian quality to Teddy Roosevelt. He was America's Churchill, warts and all. Yeah, and no, I've been, for my next book, I've been looking at the correspondence between Roosevelt and, you know, the leaders of places like South Africa and Australia. And they, they shared a lot in common. I mean, they had so much in common. And they talked openly about uh, white supremacy, about how to keep out people from Asia and how to control the black problem. You know, they had a lot in common. And I think that is not stressed often enough. We also did a show, we've done a lot of shows, as you can imagine, last week about reinventing the United Nations for the 21st century. You suggested that certainly Kahindi Andrews sees all these international organizations as sort of figments of Western, white, Western colonial power of one kind or another. How essential is it, do you think, Safnan, that we, we build international organizations in the 21st century that are truly post-colonial and truly post Anglo-American. I think it's, it's, it's very important and it's interesting that it's not happening. I mean, all these issues we're talking about, they're not going away. You go to the West Indies and you've got the CARICOM countries getting together, listing the demands they have of the West in terms of reparations and so on. And, and I don't think the United Nations or the World Bank or any of them are geared to be able to deal with these problems. But there is one organisation that is perfect all of this stuff and it's the commonwealth you know it's a international organization arguably with no particular meaning you know the one thing people agree about the commonwealth is that it has no real purpose except it could be a great talking shop to talk about reparations legacies of slavery the legacies of the raj you know all most of the members in that organization are united by a history of british empire and i think 
the royal family could be part of a constructive conversation if it engaged the Commonwealth to talk about these things. Let's try and end on a, on a slightly more positive note. Um, if Orwell was around or Churchill or, or others, they might remind us that Britain was a democracy, not an ideal one, but perhaps an improving one. So, so, so is the United States. Uh, today, of course, the news is dominated by a new kind of horrific, bloody Russian colonialism. They also is the threat of Chinese authoritarianism um, in a new Cold War that seems to be brewing. How does that all fit together? I assume you're no great fan either of, of, of Putin's form of colonialism or the kind of authoritarianism that is being nurtured in China. What models do we need to find for a democratic 21st century? I would argue both of those countries you mentioned are doing what empire did, British empire did, in that uh, Putin has got a serious case of empire nostalgia. The Chinese, the way they're buying up huge parts of Africa, are doing what the British did. And I see empire nostalgia everywhere. You know, there was a survey done in Europe. Except for Ireland. Maybe maybe we need to maybe make... Maybe not an island. Not maybe, island. Maybe the Irish need to rule the world. Maybe that can be Fintan O'Toole's next book. <laughs> but this a survey of Europeans found that actually the British aren't the most nostalgic about their empire. The Dutch are actually even more nostalgic than the British. But there's some nostalgia in France for their empire. There's nostalgia even in Belgium, where the, their empire was... Easily the most... Yeah, their empire, empire was about as bad as you can get. I mean, even rivaled Putin's or maybe even close to the Nazi empire. So are there any positive mm -hmm. models? I mean, it's all very well trashing... Every, you seem to have trashed everyone and everything, even even the Netherlands, which is usually <laughs> held up as a, as a beacon of hope and progressivism. Apart from Ireland, do we have any models, Sathnan? Yeah, Germany. Germany is great at dealing with its really difficult World War II history. Also, it's been paying back reparations to Namibia. It recently gave a billion euros. It's engaged seriously in giving back museum artifacts to its former colonies. And actually, think, I think France are doing a half-decent job as well under Macron. Well, I, don't know. I mean, the French Empire was pretty brutal. Certainly, uh, we did a show with J.P. Dalton, a Stanford historian on... French colonialism in, in Central Africa. I'm not sure the French have ever faced that. But coming back to the Germans, you're right, of course. But there's there's a rather depressing conclusion there. Do, do, do we have to experience the final solution and Nazism to get it right? Yeah, no, that is quite depressing. I, I mean, I, I just think reading is the answer. But there was Neil McGregor, the former chair of the British Museum, who said... When the Germans look at their history, they, they're thinking about how to navigate the future. But when the British look at their history, they're looking for comfort. And I think that's what we need to change. We need to change the idea that our history has to be something that reassures us. It's okay if it was difficult. It doesn't reflect you on, on you personally. We, it's all right for to deal with contradictions and dark episodes, and it's healthy.